land. And uh, we were told somehow, I don't know if it was billboards on the side of the road or whatever, that we should go to Ure. I don't know if you've ever made this drive from Durango to Ure. It's north, about 70 miles. Okay. And so we were driving, and you go through the San Juan National Forest, and it was just gorgeous. The, the road is cut out of the side of the mountain, and so you're, you're driving through. It's just breathtaking. But what made it just a tad bit uh, anxious, for me anyway, is there was no guardrail. And so you got two lanes, you know, one lane going each side, just carved in the side of the mountain, and uh, on the way into Ure, we're on the side that's hugging the mountain, so it's not too bad. But coming back, we are on, on the, seriously, on the side of my, my car, the yellow line is painted right along the side of this cliff, and so you don't have a couple of inches, you're driving just a couple inches, and there's a drop-off, thousands of, and you're driving this thing, and there's no guardrail, and there's cars coming from the other direction, and you just, uh, my knuckles were so white, I don't know if I've ever been so afraid, I mean, it was just a scary, scary thing. Fear, you know, we're fearful people sometimes. Sometimes we shouldn't be afraid. Sometimes we should be. When I was a little boy, probably 10, I think, my father suffered a heart attack. It was just my dad and I. I wasn't sure what to do. It scared me to death. It was a very scary thing. At one point, we were, uh, again, on vacation. We don't vacation all the time, just so you know this. But they make great stories if you got kids, right, dads? So we're on the, uh, some beach, someplace on the, the, the East Coast. My kids are swimming. Nathan and Lauren are swimming in the Atlantic. They, I don't know. Uh, Lauren's 10, perhaps, whatever. We were just there, and they just wanted to go out and wade in the water. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, well, after a while, I notice, I'm looking, I look over, and there's Nathan, but there's not Lauren. And so I, I go up to the thing, Nathan, where's Lauren at? He says, I don't know. He kind of points towards Europe. I'm going, ah, what are you doing? And so I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at the, the ocean's pretty big. I don't know if you've seen it lately. So I get right up to, I'm screaming, Lauren. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm panicked. I'm, what do you do? And uh, this gentleman walks up to me, and he says, so what, what's wrong? And I says, well, I lost my, my daughter. And he says, well, where is she? And I kind of pointed to Europe, and he, and he, and he, and he just said, I'm sorry. I hope you find her. Well, ah! in time, we found her, by the way. You know, you want to send her to Europe at, at that point. But uh, I was afraid. I was really, really afraid. Some of our fra- fears are uh, substantiated. Some of them are not. I remember when Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, came out. Some of y'all might remember that. 27 years ago, I think. And I was single at that point. But I remember I read this book, and probably for a week, every night, I heard every single noise. I'm sure I heard noises that weren't there in the house as well. But I, I you know, attributed them all to demonic activity of some sort. And so I was, every night, I, crazy. Uh, some things we should be afraid of. Some things we probably shouldn't be afraid of. Phobias, the American Psychiatric Society says, are... Um, Intense emotional and physical responses to uh, the threat of danger from a feared object. Uh, the, the, the response can be panic or horror or terror or those sort of things. But with a phobia, it's recognized that the, the, the degree of, of anxiousness, of fear, does not match the, the actual threat. It's way out of bounds from the the actual threat. Here are some phobias. These are these are legitimate phobias. I mean, at least that's what I'm, I'm told. Uh, a blutophobia. It's the fear of bathing. Do you have this fear? It's the person next to you have this fear, right? Just, you'll know. It's a junior high boy's fear. Okay. <laughs> Anthophobia. How about this? Fear of flowers. Fear of flowers. Really? Fear? Yeah, yeah. Those suckers are dangerous. I guess. All right. Um, 
Cherophobia, fear of happiness. I'm just afraid I'll be happy. I guess I have met people like that, okay? Chlorophobia, fear of the color green. All right, all right. St. Patty's Day, what's this person do? I don't know. No. Chlorophobia is the fear of clowns. Emetophobia is the fear of vomiting. Emetochlorophobia is the fear of vomiting clowns. No, 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 I just made that one up. But why not, right? Tetraphobia, fear of the number four. You know, okay, fear of the number four. I, I guess, I guess. The phrase, be afraid, be very afraid. That came from, I think, a 1986 horror film, The Fly. And what we need to ascertain in life, this is legitimate, is what things should I really be afraid of and what things should I not be so afraid of? Because, right, there are some things that if I'm afraid of them and I shouldn't be, it just robs me of my joy and peace. Uh, But there are things that if I should be cautious about and I'm not, that kind of ends up going the wrong direction as, as well. When I was a little boy... My dad smoked like a chimney. I remember it picked up the cigarettes, cool mild. Dad, dad, the Surgeon General says you ought not to be smoking these things. He said, oh, son, they just put that there to scare you. I'm fine. Well, when 61 years of age rolled around and my father died of emphysema, uh, he realized those last few months that that warning was he should have been afraid. He should have taken that one into consideration. If you don't take into consideration something you should be afraid about, it can lead you into all kinds of, of, of trouble. Some things that we're afraid of when we ought not to be really, but are you afraid to fly? Lots of folk are afraid to fly. If you are afraid to fly, your odds of getting killed in a flight, 0.00001%. But, but the insurance industry lets us know that if you're an adult... You will probably be in, anybody's going to be in three to four accidents before uh, they they leave this planet. You have a one to two percent of dying in an auto accident. We're not so afraid about the autos, but we're really afraid about the flying. And that's that's not really proportional. How about uh, this one? Uh, If you're about dogs, you're you're afraid of suffering a dog bite? One in 137,694. Those are your odds of being bit by a dog. But your odds of being hurt while mowing the lawn? One in 3,623. I've been telling Teresa, it's dangerous for me to be mowing the lawn. I ought not to be doing that. That's not not working. Um, How about afraid of sharks? You're going to be killed by a shark. Do you know that you have a greater chance of being killed by your spouse than being killed by a shark? One in 135,000. Those are your odds of being killed by your spouse. Shark, one in 300 million. But there are certain things that we are afraid of that we ought not to be and other things that we're uh, not afraid of that maybe we should be. Let me ask you this. God. Should we ever be afraid of God? What's the appropriate response there? This morning, what we want to do is we want to look at a story of man's life who, I'm not going to say this was just the scariest time of his life. It can also, it will be the scariest time for many, many, many people. He's just a reflection of of us as well. And so we need to pay special heed to his story to see if there's something there that I really should be afraid of that I'm I'm not being afraid of. Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. And as you do, just reminding you, Daniel uh, is not just a conglomeration of some fun stories. Um, Daniel was written to a group of people who were facing a very specific situation. And so what we want to ask ourselves is, why was this written? 
And how does it intersect with my life today? Real important. Every time we get into scripture, you've got to be asking, how does my life intersect with this today? And if you ask, why was this written? You're probably going to land on closer to right than wrong interpretation of the text. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, the inference is that, that he was kind of tipsy at this point, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink wine from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that they'd been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. A couple things that you just really need to know to be able to understand this, this text. Belshazzar, just so you know, really fascinating. This is fascinating stuff because for years and years, uh, historians said, problem with this text is there is no King Belshazzar. Because we've got the, the Babylonian Chronicles, Nabonidus's Chronicles. And the very last king of the Babylonian Empire was a gentleman by the name of Nabonidus. There was no Belshazzar listed in their annals. There was never a king of Babylonians called Belshazzar. Then a handful of years later, they found a, actually Nabonidus's uh, uh, cylinder, his Chronicles where the last king of Babylon was writing history, history from his perspective. And this is what he says. For whatever reason, about 10 years, well, for 10, year, 10 years before Babylon fell, Nabonidus, the king, went down to a town in Saudi Arabia today, Tima. And, and Tima, why it's significant, is the, the, Tima was the main trade route from all of Africa to the east. And whoever controlled that trade route, Tima, incredible riches and, and, and power. And so Nabonidus left Babylon and he went to Tima. Ten years before Babylon fell, he went there to start an outpost there in order to control the trade route. But he couldn't just leave Babylon empty. So what he did, according to Nabonidus, is he took his son. And he said, son, I'm going there. I need you to act as king here in Babylon. How about we be co-regents? We'll do this together. This is what Nabonidus said. You'll be my viceroy and any issues that come up, you, be, you, you make the call. Executive power, you just be king in Babylon and I'll take this place over here. According to Nabonidus' chronicles, his son's name was Belshazzar. And for the longest time, historians would say, oh, Daniel made a mistake. But then they had to go back and say, well, I guess whoever wrote this kind of knew what he was, he was talking about. So Belshazzar gives this great banquet. But something else you need to know historically of what's going on here. Ten days before this happened. We know the date, this was October 15th, 539 B.C. We'll get into that in a few moments. But ten days before this, what had happened is Cyrus, the king of Persia, 50 miles from Babylon, destroyed, decimated the Babylonian army. The Babylonian army was no more. It was gone. Actually, Nabonidus was leading that charge. And so when the army was decimated, he took off and got back to Tima. Left, left. He was done. The, their, their war machine was finished. The Persians had been sieging Babylon for two and a half years already. And, and what they do typically is you kind of wait around the walls because you figure they got to come out sooner or later. We'll starve them out. But inside the city, 
Belshazzar is not, not worried about this. And there's a couple of reasons why he's not worried. First of all, it's because of the walls. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that it's about 50 feet from the floor to the top of the ceiling. And I mistakenly said, I should not have said this. I mean, I, was, I thought it was correct. It wasn't. That the walls were 100 feet tall. So basically, between the floor there, twice. That's how tall they were. That's not how tall they were. That's how wide they were. They were 330 feet tall. So you go this, this from there to there, times six. As wide as, can you imagine? And then, then 75 feet from there, there was another set of walls. Same size. There were 100 towers, 450 feet tall around the perimeter of, of the city. Then after the second wall, there was a moat, deep and wide moat. Historians tell us that, that the um, part of the Babylonian army that was left in the city on the walls would, would scream down to the Persians, uh, all kinds of mocking, because there's no way you can get through this. I mean, you can get tanks, you're not getting through this, you're done. It was an impregnable city. But, but Belshazzar also knew this, that they were not going to get so hungry that they were going to be driven out that way because they had realized for some time that Cyrus and the Persians were building an army and so they had brought in um, literally tons of stores uh, into the, in the city. Also within the city, there was incredible farmland in the city. There was the largest city in the world at this point. There were flocks and herds in the city. They had all the water from the Euphrates in the city. They needed nothing. It was self-sustaining. They never had to come out. And so Belshazzar is thinking, you know what? These guys can sit out there and they can stay out there in the rain and cold. Sooner or later, they're going to go away when they see that we just don't ever have to leave. And they're coming through my wall. But there was something more going on here than that because there's some unique stuff happening in this party. First of all, you find he brings in his concubines. That's against protocol. Sometimes you might bring in the wives, maybe, maybe not. But concubines, they they never came to these parties. This was his brass. This was his his, his top guys in in Babylon came to this. Remember Solomon had 300 concubines. Concubines served only one purpose. And so for the fact that, that he would bring in the concubines... They were there still to serve only one purpose. The alcohol was flowing freely. The girls were there. This was just a drunken, very wild party. And then he does something strange. He, he, so he does this intentionally, right? He calls in, of all the things he has, lots of conquered peoples that he has. They've conquered many, many folk, not just the Hebrews. He calls in the goblets from the temple of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar stole. So 50 plus years ago. Now why does he want those? What's, what's he doing? Why, why is he doing this? Daniel chapter, chapter 9. It says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord giving to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, this, is what, this is what Daniel was reading, Jeremiah 25. This is what, what he read. He said, This, because Jeremiah's prophesying, he says, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. 
Tradition says that Belshazzar knew these prophecies. Keep in mind, he did not think that the Israeli God didn't exist. He knew he existed. They're they're pantheists. All gods existed. Of course he existed. He was just weaker than our gods. But he knew this prophecy. When your name is mentioned in a prophecy, you know about it. This this Hebrew God says, just wait 70 years, but then I'm going to come and destroy Babylon. So he's got to be getting a little bit nervous because that 70 years is getting close to the time. Uh, I don't know if you remember the whole Y2K thing. Remember this? Oh, man. You read all these books before, before the year 2000 happens and everything's supposed to go. The whole world's going to blow up and all electricity's going to shut down and just everything goes wrong because the computers weren't geared up for 2000 and it was just terrible. Well, we kind of got on the bad wagon just a little bit, stored up some water. You can't be too sure about this stuff. You know what I mean? Make some, get some extra propane for the grill just in case. And then New Year's Eve, you sit down to kind of watch New Year's Eve unraveling in the world and watch everything kind of fall apart and go to pot. And first thing that happens, I think it's New Zealand, is that right? It, uh, uh, New Year's. But it seemed to be okay after New Year's in New Zealand. And then Paris, you know, it goes. And then, and, but Paris still seemed to be okay. And we were in central time at, at the time, so we're watching to see what happens on the East Coast, right? In the Eastern time. And, and at 12 o'clock, and and well, it's, it's, the world's still going and, and New York is still happening and the ball's still and everything and people are, are dancing and lights are still going on and well, I'll be. <laughs> I knew it was a false thing. I knew, I can't believe all these stupid people. Believe. Let's go pour some water out. And we just, we just knew. You can imagine the relief. You were part of this. There was about a little bit of relief, right? Oh, God, the whole world's not going to fall apart. Tradition says that Belshazzar knew these prophecies and he miscalculated the time. And in his mind, 70 years had come and gone. He was kind of holding his breath. Now it's the 71st year, and he thought, <laughs> I knew it. It wasn't going to happen. That, that, that Israeli God can't hurt us. I knew it. I knew it. And these prophecies out. That might have been the reason why Nebuchadnezzar himself would never touch these. But, but Belshazzar thought, it's done. That God is finished. And so he takes these goblets that are designed only for, purely for, this is not the fine china, this is just designed purely for the worship of Jehovah God. And he's taking it, filling with wine, passes them out to his concubines. We're going to toast Bell to Bell. We're going to toast Nebo to Nebo. They're stronger. And he's going through all of, his, all of his gods using the things of God that God designed to, to toast. Now, now, Belshazzar is really a poster child for a pagan here, isn't he? I mean, he is living in his security. He, he, nobody can touch him inside. No one can touch him outside. He's got plenty of wine and women and song. He's living with fun and frivolity and friends. His life just doesn't get a whole lot better. He's taking all the things that God had created for glory of God, using them for himself. He's just having a blast. Well, then, Miller Party... They get an unexpected guest, kind of an uninvited guest, I I think. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. God, maybe God was thinking, you know what, they're... Those things are only supposed to be used in my presence, so I guess I better get down there. And so God shows up with a special message for Belshazzar. This is that the king 
called out for the enchanters, astrologers. Now, as you read this, this is like deja vu all over again. He called out for the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. By the way, you know why he can third, third highest ruler, right? Because Nabonidus, his dad, who's the real king, is, is hanging out in Tema. He's number two. The highest he can offer is number three, so that's what he's getting ready to offer. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Bashazar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. And at this point, in the, the, the story, the queen mother shows up. Now, she is either um, going to be actually Nebuchadnezzar's wife or, or maybe uh, Belshazzar's wife. In all honesty, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, there's probably, he, he ruled, um, let me back up a little bit. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel's 14. Here, Daniel's 80 uh, plus. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, there were four leaders, four rulers between him and Belshazzar. Uh, Belshazzar, when he refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, that's the word means ancestor, it means a leader, it's, it's the, the, the first one, and he was, he's the one that put Babylon on the map. But Belshazzar was, 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 was separated. And so we don't know, this queen mother could have been his mom, and you don't invite, if you're having a wild party, guys, let me tell you, you don't know about this yet, you don't invite your mom if you've got a wild party gun on. So mom wasn't invited, but she heard the music stop, and someone came and told her, listen, there's handwriting on the wall, it's a crazy thing, no one can understand it. So, but she understands, so she calls, she walks in, and she says, listen, King, you've got somebody in your area. I know your wise men struck out. They do this every time, I know. But you've got somebody in your kingdom who can answer this. I'm telling you, he can. When your dad, when Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne, he used him all the time. He knows what he's doing. I'm telling you, he can, he can, he can make it work. So the king calls in Daniel, verse 13. So Daniel was before, brought before the king. And the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now, what you've got to keep in mind, compare what Belshazzar, how he talks to Daniel with how Nebuchadnezzar talks with Daniel. Uh, Belshazzar is speaking in a pejorative tone. The, the, the words he uses, they're, they're degrading terms. When he says, are you one of those slaves that we brought in? Just want to remind you, slave, who you are, what you're about. So just keep, just keep that in mind. He says, I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, compare what Neb says. Neb says, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. I know, the spirit of the gods are in you. He says, I've heard that this is true about you. I've heard that you've got great wisdom and intelligence and ability, and I've, I've heard that. Now, the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard, he goes on that again, that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around your neck and you'll be made, third, made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, Daniel answered the king, um, may you keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. He knows they're not going to be worth anything in 24 hours anyway. Um, nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel's going to read the writing on the wall, but before he does, he feels like he needs to instruct Belshazzar. 
give him a little, he's 80-something years old, and this, who knows how old Belshazzar is here, but he's, he's on the younger side of being a king, and so he's got a, he's got a young whippersnapper. This guy was somebody, let me back up a second. If you look in chapter 2, the way chapter 2 ends is Nebuchadnezzar is praising the God of, of heaven, Jehovah God, Yahweh. The end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is praising Jehovah God, Yahweh. The beginning of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. Belshazzar doesn't have a whole lot of time for God. Belshazzar was one of these, these, these kids who grew up in, in royalty and money and opportunity and prestige and just takes everything for granted. He didn't have to work hard to get Babylon to where it is. And so he's just a spoiled brat type kid who's taking all the time while his dad's in Tima just having this massive party in, in uh, Babylon. So the king says in verse, or Daniel says in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Those were gifts from God. Because of the high position he gave him, God gave him that position, just like he gave it to you, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Then the king wanted to put, those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind, that's a gift from God as well, the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the nations, kingdoms of men. He sets over them anyone he wishes. He just retells chapter chapter four. Now keep in mind, before chapter between four and five, my Bible I got like a sixteenth of an inch. That sixteenth of an inch is worth twenty five years. There's been a lot of a lot of mileage that has happened, but still Belshazzar knows this is kind of a big thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar knows very well, and Daniel says, "You know about this. You understand about this, and still you've decided." to spit in the face of God. Still, you've decided to uh, uh, challenge Israel's God. Still, you've decided to mock God. But you need to know this, Belshazzar. Scripture's going to say later on, don't be deceived that God can't be mocked. He can't. And so he says, says in verse 22, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise, this is just the Levites are supposed to be messing with those things. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. You've chosen it. Chapter 4, the, the, the Israelites who are here in exile. Chapter 4 is going to answer a very important question for them. What happens with these pagan, prideful kings, most powerful people, when they repent? And the answer will be repentance leads, it's, repentance is the path to grace, right? That God's, God, God knows what he's doing, right? He's setting up the, the world. He's letting, setting up the Israelites to let them know, I love you guys, I do. But I love the pagans as well. And where there's repentance, there's grace. Wherever there's repentance, there's grace. 
But, but chapter 5, it's a mirror of chapter 4. But what happens with the cocky, arrogant king who doesn't repent? Well, repentance is the road to grace. Rebellion is the road to wrath. And so he comes up with the inscription in verse 25. He says, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tackle, barson. Now, you need to know, this is not a biblical, heavenly, mystical language. This is just simple Aramaic. This is not a strange thing. And you ask yourself, well, how come the wise guys couldn't read this for crying out loud? It says they couldn't even read it. Weren't they trained? Didn't they know how to read it? Yes, this is their language. But a couple of things. In, in Aramaic, uh, in Hebrew, uh, there's no vowels. And so it's just consonants. And so the only way you really know what a word means is by its context. This has no context. Also, when, when they wrote, they wrote from right to left. In English, of course, we put a, sp- a space between each word. Well, they're writing on animal skins, hard to get. They couldn't afford that, and so they wrote them right together. The words were right together. So they would look at this, and it would look like just a conglomeration of consonants. Well, uh, we're not sure what it means. For example, the, the word many. Okay, now this is what Daniel's going to say it means. He says God, it means that God has numbered the days of your reign and brought you to an end. Now, what the word means, though, is it can mean, if you get the right vowels into it, mina, which is coin. Or it can mean mene, which is uh, to be, uh, uh, um, not to be weighed, to be numbered. Tekel, the word tekel. If you get the right vowels in there, it can mean shekel, which is a coin. But uh, it can also mean, if you change up the words, to be weighed. The word a parson, a paris, can mean half a shekel, half a mina. It can be, mean divided. Or it can mean Persia. You, you, you see, what's, this is what God's doing here. God says, you like the, the gods of gold and silver? Let's talk about them. I'm, I'm okay, I'll use that motif with you. The mina and the shekel and the divided. Just like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. You, you like the, the motif of you being a green tree? Okay, let's talk about the tree gets chopped down. So God is, is coming here. And so Daniel, what he does is he takes these nouns and he adds a, enough verbs to make them, uh, enough cons- vowels to make them verbals. And he says, here's the bottom line to the message. Uh, your time is up. You've been weighed. Wait, all your goodness, all your goodness, all your works found wanting, you lose. It's all over. That's the message. It's all over. Time is up. I've taken everything into account, and you lose. That's it. That's the message. So he gives that to him. And then in verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command... Belshazzar probably not sure what to do with, with this. He doesn't fight it, though. At his command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. We talked about that last week. Nabonidus, the, the king who's hightailed it out of there after his army got decimated, in his chronicle, he says what happened is because the Persians had been around the city for two and a half years. They weren't just sitting there idly. They were doing something. Their, their engineers were working to divert the Euphrates. And so that was the night where they diverted the river. 
as the river level went down, his army, according to Nabonidus, marched in under the walls, under the, the, the gate, uh, uh, the mesh gate that allowed the water to go through. Underneath that, and came right into Babylon, but there was such a drunken stupor in Babylon that there wasn't even a battle. They just took over the city, killed uh, Belshazzar, though, as well. So how does this intersect with us? Okay, it's a great story, fun, interesting. How does it intersect with our lives? Well, a couple different things. First of all, the writing on the wall was definitely for Belshazzar, but it's also for you and me, because we are Belshazzar. I mean, I'd like to think I'm more like Daniel. Yeah, I'm more like Daniel and I. You know, but when I stop and I look at my heart and I trip and fall so much, and I say, you know what? I might have a little bit more akin with Belshazzar. Belshazzar, you know, number one thing that he was labeled with was using the holy goblets, the holy vessels for his own agenda. Uh, people created in the image of God. God's vessels. You ever use people? You ever be, be, it's neighbors and uh, uh, friends and relatives. Or you just using them kind of to get ahead. Your employees, your employers. Just, just they're, they're, when you look at people, their value is really only based on how it helps you to feel, how it helps you to get ahead. If they make me feel good, if they allow me to enjoy life, if they help me to produce, then they're worth something. If they're not, then I need to get rid of them. Uh, th- at that point, you are using the holy vessels for your own agenda, and God's got a message for that. God, that message is mene, mene tekel, Paris. Let me push that one just a little bit further. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, uh, the, the man, woman, not your, your spouse. Do you realize that person is God's daughter or God's son? And he created them for a specific purpose, to glorify himself. And when you use that person... Uh, to satisfy your lust or use that person to build those fantasies in your mind, you are using the holy vessels, using the holy vessels for your own agenda. And God's got a message. The message is mene, mene, tekel, Paris. You say, well, myself. Okay, forget everybody else. I'm just going to live my life and do, I'm the master of my fate kind of thing. Nah, not so quick. If you follow Christ, if you claim to follow Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God with your body. Use your own breaths and your own heartbeats and your own thoughts and your own energy for you. You're you're throwing Belshazzar's party. That's what you're doing. You might not be aware of it. You might not know it, but that's exactly what's going on. Those are holy vessels using it for for, uh, godless things. God says, "Ah, you don't use the holy vessels for your own agenda. They're, they're, They're set aside for my work, for me. Um, Zechariah 14. You know, quote too many verses out of Zechariah 14, right? But Zechariah 14, verses 20 and 21. It's talking about the end times, when the kingdom comes. It says, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. 
And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Matter of fact, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. What he's saying is once the kingdom is initiated, and it has been initiated, not fully consummated until Jesus comes back, but his kingdom is going now, so this verse applies. With this verse, it decimates the, the gap between the secular and the sacred. So before you had to come to the, the temple, it's all, it's all done. Everything, even the most mundane, simple things, the halters on the horses, everything is sacred. It's to be used for him, for his glory. And so if you use anything in life for yourself, there's a message. And it's mene, mene, tekel, paris. Let's, let's look at that for a minute. Mene, your time is up. What's the right age for your time to be up, do you think? Uh, we want maybe 100, unless you're 100, then you're thinking 102. Unless things are really hurting, then you want to go back 97. You know, you, we, we, but we, 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 that's how we look at, at it. You need to know, 100 was never God's plan. 110 was never God's plan. It's, it, there's, God's plan is that we live for forever. And so when in fact, any age, it's, 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 it's uh, the final enemy. But I know when I was in grade school, I had a classmate die. First time I had a kid was probably uh, eight, nine, maybe it's ten at that point. Uh, and I've never had a friend to die before. But that day he received Mene on his wall. Uh, when I hit high school, our junior class president, she was shot and killed. Mene was on her wall. Hit college, right? As soon as I graduated, a good friend of mine uh, Diagnosed with leukemia, she died within a year, 23, I think. Uh, another friend of mine, when he was 26, just been married a year, uh, died. And I, I think, between all of us, you know, if we combine all of our stories, we probably know of somebody every single year of life. So any year is an option. We, we would like it to be way down the road at some other point, but there's zero guarantees. And the reality is, for every one of us, at some point on the wall, it's going to be written, Mene, your time is up. So let me ask, if God was to come to your wall right now, crash your party right now, and write, Mene, time is up, man. It's up. I know some people longer, some shorter, I got it, but your time is up right now. What would be the words that would follow? He said, time's up. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take all your stuff, and we're going to put it in the scales and see how it looks. It's going to be a scary thing. Will we get the word tackle be next? I've been, you've been, you've been, I counted up all your stuff and it just doesn't add up. Sorry. Sorry. We're taking all the feelings out of this just realistically, legitimately, pragmatically. You, you found wanting. If God was to come to you and God was to say, you know, I am the God who knows everything you think. I've always known everything you think. And when you think some things, you thought some things. You know, you've forgotten some of the things you used to think about. But I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm aware of them. Uh, and I know of every word you've ever said. And some of them were just said were mean or, or gossip or cursing or vulgar. I, 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 know, I know of all of these. I'm putting those on the scales too. And, and also, you know, everything you've ever done. And some of the stuff you're doing right now that you don't think anyone knows about, now they're going on the scale as well and every motivation of your heart. Matter of fact, I'm going beyond that. There are things that you've deceived yourself about, you think you're okay with, but I know different. They're going on the scale as well. Might you get the word tackle next? This is why I think, oh man, I think if if you're looking just at that, I'm probably a little more along the lines of Belshazzar. I'm in trouble. Paris, guilt. Now let's, 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 let's do some theology um, 
101, but this is real important stuff because uh, I don't want us to ever be uh, misunderstand the gospel. Real important. When we trust Christ, we don't do it. We don't do it because he helps me feel significant, because he's going to alleviate my guilt, because he's going to give me a second chance in life, because he's going to fill me with feelings of peace. That's not why we accept Christ. Sometimes when you talk to people, it's like, well, you know, there's Jesus and there's Muhammad and there's atheism. And it's like, ick a bick a soda cracker, ick a bick a boo, I pick Jesus. Yeah, it was just a wise choice. No, 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 it's not. It's not just that. And it's a wise choice to choose. But that's just, it's just not that. You know, scripture says, the Bible says we are saved. That's a term it uses. Saved. And so you have to ask yourself, saved from what? And it's not saved from insignificance, and it's not saved from a poor self-image, and it's not saved from that bad relationship or that bad time going on in life or for, from, from feelings of, of badness in my heart. That's not, that's, we're not saved from those things. God may use those things to get you to him, but those are secondary. And here's a key problem. is Sometimes people see those things as what they're supposed to be saved from, so they trust in Christ, but those things don't go away. And they're going, I'm supposed to be saved, but he didn't save me from anything. Forget it. What good is this? Because they're looking at secondary issues as the primary issue, and they're way off. There's something a whole lot bigger than that. We are saved from the wrath of God. Romans, this is all over Scripture. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Next. That's not Daniel 2.8, by the way. It's Romans 2.8. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger, which is kind of like the same thing, right? Wrath and anger. It's just really underlining, letting us know what it is. Ephesians lets us know that let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. And then Colossians 3.6 lets us know because of these, the wrath of God is coming. God has set his law. We've all disobeyed it in lots and lots and lots and lots of ways. So God's response to that is wrath. It, it's, it's anger. We might think, well, that shouldn't be. It, it is what it is. It, it, it is. That's why we can say this. Since, those who know Christ, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from, that's what you're saved from, God's wrath through him. He's talking about saints here in Thessalonians. He says, they tell, you, they tell me how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We are saved from the wrath of God. That is huge. That's just a, that, that, that is not, we're not dealing with peripheral cosmetic things. This is a major thing. This is why Jesus, when he was on the cross, could pray and say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's not for his benefit. He knows why. But it's because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus because he was carrying my sins and your sins. You were supposed to be the recipient, as I was, of of God's wrath. But Jesus, when he took our sins, he took the wrath of God. I think this is why in Gethsemane, he's he's like saying, I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't think it was because of the physical stuff. He'd been through other physical things. Uh, It's kind of all we can see. 
But how intense was this spiritually for the first time in eternity to have a splinter in the Godhead somehow where Jesus takes the wrath of God the Father. And when that wrath was finally satisfied, Jesus was dead and then he rose. So when we place our faith in him, it's the wrath Jesus took it. That's what I'm saved from. Uh, so let me ask a couple things. Maybe you've trusted in Christ at some point. Uh, but at this point, you're honest with yourself. You know, yeah, maybe I'm using some of the things God has created for his glory, for his wisdom. Things that he wants me to use for him. I'm just using them for me. Maybe you've got Belshazzar's party going on a little bit. Wouldn't you rather hear when you get Mene on your wall, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest? The answer, just so you know, it's not, well, maybe I should work on some stuff. That's really not the answer. The answer is repentance. It's saying, I'm giving it to him. I'm done. The party's over. And I'm not waiting for the hand to come on the wall to unplug the party. Everyone wants to get their life straight when everything crashes. How about this? How about before it crashes? How about before the hand comes on the wall, you say, you know what? I'm going to pull the plug on the party. It's done. It's done. It's just done. Second person, maybe you're in a situation where what I'm saying to you, you just, you've never heard this before. And you've got zero security right now. If he was to say, your time is up, and he was to take all my stuff and put it on the scales, I'm in all kinds of trouble. Yeah, I would have been there too, certainly. That's why Jesus died. You don't have to be in all kinds of trouble. And you don't have to have that insecurity. He took God's wrath for you. And so to say, Jesus, it's, it's, my sin is yours. I am yours. Let me say it this way. Because this kind of covers both, both groups. Sometimes we say, um, let me just say it this way. Are you living for him, following him, or not? Not, did you say a prayer way back when? Did you sign a card? Did you raise your hand? Are you living for him or not? I think practically speaking, that's what it, it comes down to. I think the message from Daniel 5 is we need self-examination. We need to know we need to live in a holy fear of God. We need to recognize that he's real. And you know what? There really will be a day when Mene is announced. What will he say after that? Would you pray with me?